A cart trundled through the freezing, foggy streets. The driver hunched in his seat. He seemed to be all big, thick brown overcoat. A figure darted out of the swirls and was suddenly on the box next to him. Hi, it said. My name's Teatime. What's yours? Here, you get down. I ain't allowed to give lift. The driver stopped. It was amazing how Tea Time had been able to thrust a knife through four layers of thick clothing and stop it just at the point where it pricked the flesh. Sorry, said Tea Time, smiling brightly. Er, uh, there ain't nothing valuable, you know, nothing valuable, only a few bags of... Oh, dear, said Tea Time, his face a sudden acre of concern. Well, we'll just have to see, won't we? What is your name, sir? Ernie. Er, uh, Ernie, said Ernie. Yes, er, uh, Ernie. Um... Tea Time turned his head slightly. Come along, gentlemen, this is my friend Ernie. He's going to be our driver for tonight. Ernie saw half a dozen figures emerge from the fog and climb into the cart behind him. He didn't turn to look at them. By the pricking of his kidneys, he knew this would not be an exemplary career move. But it seemed that one of the figures, a huge shambling mound of a creature, was carrying a long bundle over its shoulders. The bundle moved and made muffled noises. Do stop shaking, Ernie. We just need a lift, said Tea Time as the cart rumbled over the cobbles. Where to, mister? Oh, we don't mind, but first I'd like you to stop in Sator Square, near the second fountain. The knife was withdrawn. Ernie stopped trying to breathe through his ears. Er, uh, what is it? You do seem tense, Ernie. I always find a neck massage helps. I ain't rightly allowed to carry passengers, see. Charlie'll give me a right telling off. Oh, don't you worry about that, said Tea Time, slapping him on the back. We're all friends here. What are we bringing the girl for? said a voice behind them. It's not right hitting girls, said a deep voice. Our mam said no hitting girls. Only bad boys do that, our mam said. You be quiet, Banjo. Our mam said... Shh, Ernie here doesn't want to listen to our troubles, said Tea Time, not taking his gaze off the driver. Me? Jeff is a post, me, burbled Ernie, who in some ways was a very quick learner. Can't hardly see more than a few feet, neither. Got no recollection for them faces that I do see, come to that. <laughs> bad memory? <laughs> Talk about bad memory. God, sometimes I can be like, as it were, on the cart, talking to people. <laughs> Just like I'm talking to you now. And then when they're gone, oh, try as I might, do you think I can remember anything about them, or how many there were, or... What they were carrying, or anything about any girl, or anything? By this time his voice was a high-pitched wheeze. <laughs> Sometimes I forget my own name. It's Ernie, isn't it? said Tea Time, giving him a happy smile. Ah, and here we are. Oh dear, there seems to be some excitement. There was the sound of fighting somewhere ahead, then a couple of masked trolls ran past with three watchmen after them. They all ignored the cart. I heard the British gang were going to have a go at Packley's strong room tonight, said a voice behind Ernie. Looks like Mr Brown won't be joining us then, said another voice. There was a snigger. Oh, I don't know about that, Mr Lillywhite. I don't know about that at all, said a third voice, and this one was from the direction of the fountain. Could you take my bag while I climb up, please? Do be careful. It's a little heavy. It was a neat little voice. The owner of a voice like that kept his money in a shovel purse and always counted his change carefully. Ernie thought all this and then tried very hard to forget that he had. On you go, Ernie, said Tea Time, round behind the university, I think. As the cart rolled on, the neat little voice said, You grab all the money and then you get out very smartly, am I right? There was a murmur of agreement. Learned that on my mother's knee, yeah. You learned a lot of stuff across your ma's knee, Mr Lillywhite. Don't you see nothing about our mam? The voice was like an earthquake. This is Mr Brown, Banjo. You smarten up. He didn't ought to talk about our mam. All right, all right. Hello, Banjo. I think I may have a suite somewhere. Yes, there you are. Yes, your ma knew the way, all right. You go in quietly, you take your time, you get what you came for, and you leave smartly and in good order. You don't hang around at the scene to count it all out, and tell one another what brave lads you are. Am I right? You seem to have done all right, Mr Brown. The cart rattled towards the other side of the square. Just a little for expenses, Mr Cat's Eye, a little Hogswatch present, you might say. 
Never take the lot and run. Take a little and walk. Dress neat, that's my motto. Dress neat and walk away slowly. Never run. Never run. The watch will always chase a running man. They're like terriers for giving chase. No, you walk out slow, you walk around the corner, you wait till there's a lot of excitement, then you turn around and walk back. They can't cope with that, see? Half the time they'll stand aside and let you walk past. Good evening, officers, you say, and then you go home for your tea. Whee! Gets you out of trouble, I can see that, if you've got the nerve. Oh no, Mr Peachy, doesn't get you out of, keeps you out of. It was like a very good schoolroom. Ernie thought, and immediately tried to forget. Or a backstreet gym when a champion prize fighter had just strolled in. What's up with your mouth, Banjo? He's lost a tooth, Mr Brown, said another voice and sniggered. Lost a tooth, Mr Brown, said the thunder that was Banjo. Keep your eyes on the road, Ernie, said Tea Time beside him. We don't want an accident, do we? The road here was deserted, despite the bustle of the city behind them and the bulk of the university nearby. There were a few streets, but the buildings were abandoned. And something was happening to the sound. The rest of Ankh-Morpork seemed very far away, the sounds arriving as if through quite a thick wall. They were entering that scorned little corner of Ankh-Morpork that had long been the site of the university's rubbish pits and was now known as the Unreal Estate. Bludgy wizards, muttered Ernie automatically. I beg your pardon? said Tea Time. My great-grandpa said we used to own property round here. Low levels of magic, my arse. <laughs> it's all right for them wizards. They've got all kinds of spells to protect them. Bit of magic here, bit of magic there. Stands to reason it's got to go somewhere, right? There used to be warning signs up, said the neat voice from behind. Yeah, well, warning signs in Arkmorpork might as well have good firewood written on them, said someone else. I mean, stands to reason, they took out an old spell for exploding this, and another one for twiddling that, and another one for making carrots grow. They finish up interfering with one another, and who knows what they'll end up doing, said Ernie. Great-grandpa said sometimes they'd wake up in the morning and the cellar'd be higher than the attic. And that weren't the worst, he added darkly. Yeah, I heard where it got so bad you could walk down the street and meet yourself coming the other way. Someone supplied. It's got so's you didn't know it was bum or breakfast time, I heard. The dog used to bring home all kinds of stuff, said Ernie. Great-grandpa said half the time they used to dive behind the sofa if it came in with anything in its mouth. Corroded fire spells starting to fizz, broken ones with green smoke coming out of them, and I don't know what else. And if you saw the cat playing with anything, it was best not to try and find out what it was, I can tell you. He twitched the reins, his current predicament almost forgotten in the tide of hereditary resentment. I mean, they say all the old spell books and stuff was buried deep, and they recycle the used spells now, but that don't seem much comfort when your potatoes started walking about, he grumbled. My great-grandpa went to see the head wizard about it, and he said... He put on a strangled nasal voice, which was his idea of how you talked when you'd got an education. Oh... There might be some temporary inconvenience now, my good man, but just you come back in 50,000 years. Bloody wizards. The horse turned a corner. This was a dead-end street. Half-collapsed houses, windows smashed, doors stolen, leaned against one another on either side. I heard they said they were going to clean up this place, said someone. Oh, yeah, said Ernie and spat. When it hit the ground, it ran away. And you know what? You get loonies coming in all the time now, poking around, pulling things about. Just at the wall up ahead, said Tea Time conversationally, I think you generally go through just where there's a pile of rubble by the old dead tree, although you wouldn't see it unless you looked closely, but I've never seen how you do it. Here, I can't take you lot through, said Ernie. Lifts is one thing, but not taking people through, Tea Time sighed. And we were getting on so well. Listen, Ernie. Ern, you will take us through, or, and I say this with very considerable regret, I will have to kill you. You seem a nice man, conscientious, a very serious overcoat and sensible boots. But if I take you through... What's the worst that can happen, said Tea Time? You'll lose your job, whereas if you don't, you'll die. So if you look at it like that, we're actually doing you a favour. Oh, do say yes. 
Uh, Ernie's brain felt twisted up. The lad was definitely what Ernie thought of as a toff, and he seemed nice and friendly, but it didn't all add up. The tone and the content didn't match. Besides, said Tea Time, if you've been coerced, it's not your fault, is it? No one can blame you. No one could blame anyone who'd been coerced at knife point. Oh, oh well, I suppose if we're talking coerced, Ernie muttered, going along with things seemed to be the only way. The horse stopped and stood waiting with the patient look of an animal that probably knows the route better than the driver. Ernie fumbled in his overcoat pocket and took out a small tin, rather like a snuff-box. He opened it. There was glowing dust inside. "'What do you do with that?' said Tea Time, all interested. "'Oh, you just takes a pinch and throws it in the air and it goes, twing, and it opens the soft place,' said Ernie. "'So, you don't need any special training or anything?' "'Er, uh, you just chucks it at the wall there and it goes, twing,' said Ernie. "'Really? May I try?' Tea Time took the tin from his unresisting hand and threw a pinch of dust into the air in front of the horse. It hovered for a moment and then produced a narrow, glittering arch in the air. It sparkled and went twing. Oh, said a voice behind them, in that nice, eh, our Davy? Yeah, all pretty sparkles. And then you just drive forward, said Tea Time. That's right, said Ernie. Quick mind, it only stays open for a little while. Tea time pocketed the little tin. Thank you very much, Ernie. Very much indeed. His other hand lashed out. There was a glint of metal. The carter blinked and then fell sideways off his seat. There was silence from behind, tinted with horror and possibly just a little terrible admiration. Wasn't he dull? said Tea Time, picking up the reins. Snow began to fall. It fell on the recumbent shape of Ernie, and it also fell through several hooded grey robes that hung in the air. There appeared to be nothing inside them. You could believe they were merely there to make a certain point in space. Well, said one, we are frankly impressed. Indeed, said another, we would never have thought of doing it this way. He is certainly a resourceful human, said a third. "'The beauty of it all,' said the first, "'or it may have been the second, "'because absolutely nothing distinguished the robes, "'is that there is so much else we will control.' "'Quite,' said another. "'It really is amazing how they think, "'a sort of illogical logic.' "'Children,' said another, "'who would have thought it? "'But today the children, tomorrow the world.' "'Give me a child until he is seven, and he's mine for life,' said another. There was a dreadful pause. The consensus beings that called themselves the auditors did not believe in anything, except possibly immortality, and the way to be immortal they knew was to avoid living. Most of all, they did not believe in personality. To be a personality was to be a creature with a beginning and an end, and since they reasoned that in an infinite universe any life was by comparison unimaginably short, they died instantly. There was a flaw in their logic, of course, but by the time they found this out it was always too late. In the meantime, they scrupulously avoided any comment, action or experience that set them apart. You said, me, said one. Ah, yes, but you see we were quoting, said the other one hurriedly. Some religious person said that, about educating children, and so would logically say me. But I wouldn't use that term of myself. Oh, ooh, damn! The robe vanished in a little puff of smoke. Let that be a lesson to us, said one of the survivors, as another and totally indistinguishable robe popped into existence where the stricken colleague had been. Yes, said the newcomer. Well, it certainly appears... It stopped. A dark shape was approaching through the snow. It's him, it said. They faded hurriedly, not simply vanishing, but spreading out and thinning until they were just lost in the background. The dark figure stopped by the dead carter and reached down. Could I give you a hand? Ernie looked up gratefully. Oh, yeah, he said. He got to his feet, swaying a little. Here, your finger's cold, mister. Sorry. What did he go and do that for? I did what he said. He could have killed me. Ernie felt inside his overcoat and pulled out a small and at this point strangely transparent silver flask. 
I always keep a nip on me these cold nights, he said. Keeps me spirits up. Yes, indeed. Death looked around briefly and sniffed the air. How am I going to explain all this then, eh? said Ernie, taking a pull. Sorry. That was very rude of me. I wasn't paying attention. I said, what am I going to tell people? Letting some blokes ride off with my cart neat as you like. That's going to be the sack for sure. I'm going to be in big trouble. Ah, well, there at least I have some good news, Ernest. And then again, I have some bad news. Ernie listened. Once or twice he looked at the corpse at his feet. He looked smaller from the outside. He was bright enough not to argue. Some things are fairly obvious when it's a seven-foot skeleton with a scythe telling you them. So, I'm dead then, he concluded. Correct. Er, uh, the priest said that, you know, after you're dead, it's like going through a door, and on one side of it there's hell, well, a terrible place. Death looked at his worried fading face. Through a door? That's what he said. I expect it depends on the direction you're walking in. When the street was empty again, except for the fleshy abode of the late Ernie, the grey shapes came back into focus. Honestly, he gets worse and worse, said one. He was looking for us, said another. Did you notice? He suspects something. He gets so concerned about things. Yes, but the beauty of this plan, said a third, is that he can't interfere. He can go everywhere, said one. No, said another, not quite everywhere. And with ineffable smugness they faded into the foreground. It started to snow quite heavily. It was the night before Hogswatch. All through the house, one creature stirred. It was a mouse. And someone, in the face of all appropriateness, had baited a trap. Although, because it was the festive season, they'd used a piece of pork crackling. The smell of it had been driving the mouse mad all day. But now, with no one about, it was prepared to risk it. The mouse didn't know it was a trap. Mice aren't good at passing on information. Young mice aren't taken up to famous trap sites and told, This is where your Uncle Arthur passed away. All it knew was that, what the hay, there was something to eat. On a wooden board with some wire round it. A brief scurry later and its jaw had closed on the rind, or rather passed through it. The mouse looked around at what was now lying under the big spring and thought, oops. Then its gaze went up to the black-clad figure that had faded into view by the wainscoting. Squeak, it asked. Squeak, said the death of rats. And that was it, more or less. Afterwards, the death of rats looked around with interest. In the nature of things, his very important job tended to take him to rickyards and dark cellars and the inside of cats and all the little dank holes where rats and mice finally found out if there was a promised cheese. This place was different. It was brightly decorated, for one thing. Ivy and mistletoe hung in bunches from the bookshelves. Brightly coloured streamers festooned the walls, a feature seldom found in most holes, or even quite civilised cats. The death of rats took a leap onto a chair, and from there onto the table, and in fact right into a glass of amber liquid which tipped over and broke. A puddle spread around four turnips, and began to soak into a note which had been written rather awkwardly on pink writing paper. It read, Dear Hogfather, For Hog's Watch, I would like a drum, and a dolly, and a teddy bear, and a ghastly Omnian Inquisition torture chamber with wind-up rack and nearly real blood you can use again. You can get it from the toy shopper in Short Street, it is $5.99. I have been good, and here is a glass of sherry and a pork pie for you and turnips for gouger and tusker and rooter and snot... Uh, Snouter. I hop the chimney is big enough, but my friend William says you are your father, really. Yours, Virginia Prude. The death of rats nibbled a bit of the pork pie, because when you are the personification of the death of small rodents, you have to behave in certain ways. He also piddled on one of the turnips for the same reason, although only metaphorically, because when you are a small skeleton in a black robe, there are also some things you technically cannot do. 
Then he leapt down from the table and left sherry-flavoured footprints all the way to the tree that stood in a pot in the corner. It was really only a bare branch of oak, but so much shiny holly and mistletoe had been wired onto it that it gleamed in the light of the candles. There was tinsel on it and glittering ornaments and small bags of chocolate money. The death of rats peered at his hugely distorted reflection in a glass ball and then looked up at the mantelpiece. He reached it in one jump and ambled curiously through the cards that had been ranged along it. His grey whiskers twitched at messages like, "'Whiffing you joy and all goody cheer at hogswatch time and all through the yeary.' A couple of them had pictures of a big jolly fat man carrying a sack. In one of them he was riding in a sledge drawn by four enormous pigs. The death of rats sniffed at a couple of long stockings that had been hung from the mantelpiece, over the fireplace in which a fire had died down to a few sullen ashes. He was aware of a subtle tension in the air, a feeling that here was a scene that was also a stage, a round hole, as it were, waiting for a round peg. There was a scraping noise, a few lumps of soot thumped into the ashes. The grim squeaker nodded to himself. The scraping became louder and was followed by a moment of silence and then a clang as something landed in the ashes and knocked over a set of ornamental fire irons. The rat watched carefully as a red-robed figure pulled itself upright and staggered across the hearthrug, rubbing its shin where it had been caught by the toasting fork. It reached the table and read the note. The death of rats thought he heard a groan. The turnips were pocketed, and so, to the death of rats' annoyance, was the pork pie. He was pretty sure it was meant to be eaten here, not taken away. The figure scanned the dripping note for a moment, and then turned around and approached the mantelpiece. The death of rats pulled back slightly behind Stephen's greetings. A red-gloved hand took down a stocking. There was some creaking and rustling as it was replaced, looking a lot fatter. The larger box sticking out of the top had just visible the words Victim figures not included three to ten years. The death of rats couldn't see much of the donor of this munificence. The big red hood hid all the face, apart from a long white beard. Finally, when the figure finished, it stood back and pulled a list out of its pocket. It held it up to the hood and appeared to be consulting it. It waved its other hand vaguely at the fireplace, the sooty footprints, the empty sherry glass and the stocking, then it bent forward as if reading some tiny print. "'Ah, yes,' it said. "'Er, ho, ho, ho!' With that it ducked down and entered the chimney. There was some scrabbling before its boots gained a purchase and then it was gone. The death of rats realised he'd begun to gnaw his little scythe's handle in sheer shock. "'Squeak?' He landed in the ashes and swarmed up the sooty cave of the chimney. He emerged so fast that he shot out with his legs still scrabbling and landed in the snow on the roof. There was a sledge hovering in the air by the gutter. The red-hooded figure had just climbed in and appeared to be talking to someone invisible behind a pile of sacks. "'Here's another pork pie!' "'Any mustard?' said the sacks. "'They retreat with mustard.' "'It does not appear so.' "'Ah, well, pass it over anyway.' It looks very bad. Nah, it's just where something's nibbled it. I mean, the situation. Most of the letters. They don't really believe. They pretend to believe, just in case. This is very similar to the suggestion put forward by the Quermian philosopher Vuntra, who said, possibly the gods exist, and possibly they do not. So why not believe in them in any case? If it's all true, you'll go to a lovely place when you die, and if it isn't, then you've lost nothing, right? When he died, he woke up in a circle of gods holding nasty-looking sticks, and one of them said, We're going to show you what we think of Mr Cleverdick in these parts. I fear it may be too late. It has spread so fast and back in time, too. Never say die, master. That's our motto, eh? said the sacks, apparently with their mouth full. I can't say it's ever really been mine. I mean, we're not going to be intimidated by the certain prospect of complete and utter failure, master. Aren't we? Oh, good. Well, I suppose we'd better be going. The figure picked up the reins. Up, Gouger, up, Rooter, up, Tusker, up, Snouter, giddy up. The four large boars harnessed to the sledge did not move. Why doesn't that work? said the figure in a puzzled, heavy voice. It's me, master, said the sacks. It works on horses. 
You could try Pig Hooey. Pig Hooey. They waited. No, doesn't seem to reach them. There was some whispering. Really? You think that would work? It'd bloody well work on me if I was a pig master. Very well, then. The figure gathered up the reins again. Apple sauce! The pig's legs blurred. Silver light flicked across them and exploded outwards. They dwindled to a dot and vanished. Squeak! The death of rats skipped across the snow, slid down a drainpipe and landed on the roof of a shed. There was a raven perched there. It was staring disconsolately at something. Squeak! Look at that, will ya? said the raven rhetorically. It waved a claw at a bird table in the garden below. They hangs up half a bloody coconut, a lump of bacon rind, a handful of peanuts in a bit of wire, and they think they're the God's gift to the natural world. Eh! Do I see eyeballs? Do I see entrails? I think not. Most intelligent bird in the temperate latitudes and I gets the cold shoulder just because I can't hang upside down and go tweet, tweet. Look at robins now, stroppy little evil buggers. Fight like demons, but all they got to do is go bob, bob, bobbing along and they can't move for breadcrumbs. Whereas me myself can recite poems and repeat many humorous phrases. Squeak! Yes, what? The death of rats pointed at the roof and then the sky and jumped up and down excitedly. The raven swivelled one eye upwards. Ah, oh, yes, him, he said. Turns up at this time of year. Tends to be associated distantly with robins, which... Squeak! Squeak! The death of rats pantomimed a figure landing in a grate and walking around a room. Squeak! Eek! 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 Squeak! Heek! 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 Eek! 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 Squeak! Been overdoing the hog's watch cheer, have you? Been rootling around in the brandy butter? Squeak? The raven's eyes revolved. Look, death's death. It's a full-time job, right? It's not as though you can run like a window-cleaning round on the side or nip round after work cutting people's lawns. Squeak! Ah, please yourself. The raven crouched a little to allow the tiny figure to hop onto its back and then lumbered into the air. Of course, they can go mental, your occult types, it said as it swooped over the moonlit garden. Look at old man trouble for one. Squeak! Oh, I'm not suggesting. Susan didn't like beers, but she went there anyway when the pressure of being normal got too much. Beers, despite the smell and the drink and the company, had one important virtue. In beers, no one took any notice of anything. Hog's watch was traditionally supposed to be a time for families, but the people who drank in beers probably didn't have families. Some of them looked as though they might have had litters or clutches. Some of them looked as though they'd probably eaten their relatives, or at least someone's relatives. Beers was where the undead drank, and when Igor the barman was asked for a Bloody Mary, he didn't mix a metaphor. The regular customers didn't ask questions, and not only because some of them found anything above a growl hard to articulate. None of them was in the answers business. Everyone in beers drank alone, even when they were in groups or packs. Despite the decorations put up inexpertly by Igor the barman to show willing, beers was not a family place. He'd done his best, but black and purple and vomit yellow weren't a good colour combination for paper chains, and no Hogswatch fairy doll should be nailed up by its head. Family was a subject Susan liked to avoid. Currently, she was being aided in this by a gin and tonic. In beers, unless you weren't choosy, it paid to order a drink that was transparent because Igor also had undirected ideas about what you could stick on the end of a cocktail stick. If you saw something spherical and green, you just had to hope that it was an olive. She felt hot breath on her ear. A bogeyman had sat down on the stool beside her. 
Was a normal doing in a place like this, then? It rumbled, causing a cloud of vaporised alcohol and halitosis to engulf her. Ha! You think it's cool coming down here and swanning around in a black dress with all the lost boys, huh? Dabbling in a bit of designer darkness, huh? Susan moved her stool away a little. The bogeyman grinned. Want a bogeyman under your bed, hmm? Now then, Schlimmerzel, said Igor, without looking up from polishing a glass. Well, what's she down here for, hmm? said the bogeyman. A huge, hairy hand grabbed Susan's arm. Of course, maybe what she wants is... I ain't telling you again, Schlimmerzel, said Igor. He saw the girl turn to face Schlimmerzel. Igor wasn't in a position to see her face fully, but the bogeyman was. He shot back so quickly that he fell off his stool. And when the girl spoke, what she said was only partly words, but also a statement, written in stone, of how the future was going to be. Go away and stop bothering me. She turned back and gave Igor a polite and slightly apologetic smile. The bogeyman struggled frantically out of the wreckage of his stool and loped towards the door. Susan felt the drinkers turn back to their private preoccupations. It was amazing what you could get away with in beers. Igor put down the glass and looked up at the window. For a drinking den that relied on darkness, it had rather a large one. But of course, some customers did arrive by air. Something was tapping on it now. Igor lurched over and opened it. Susan looked up. Oh, no. The death of rats leapt down onto the counter, with the raven fluttering after it. Squeak, squeak, ick, ick, squeak, ick, ick, heek, 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 squeak. Go away, said Susan coldly. I'm not interested. You're just a figment of my imagination. The raven perched on a bowl behind the bar and said, Oh, great. Squeak. What are these, said the raven, flicking something off the end of its beak. Onions. Pfft. Go on, go away, the pair of you, said Susan. The rat says your granddad's gone mad, said the raven. Says he's pretending to be the hogfather. Listen, I just... what? Red cloak, long beard, heek, 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 going ho, 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 driving around in the big sledge drawn by the four piggies, the whole thing. Pigs? What happened to Binky? Search me, cause it can happen, as I was telling the rat only just now. Susan put her hands over her ears, more for desperate theatrical effect than for the muffling they gave. I don't want to know. I don't have a grandfather. She had to hold on to that. The death of rats squeaked at length. The rat says you must remember he's tall and not what you'd call fleshy. He carries a scythe. Go away and take the the rat with you. She waved her hand wildly and, to her horror and shame, knocked the little hooded skeleton over an ashtray. Eek! The raven took the rat's cowl in its beak and tried to drag him away, but a tiny skeletal fist shook its scythe. Eek! 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 Squeak! He says you don't mess with the rat, said the raven. In a flurry of wings they were gone. Igor closed the window. He didn't pass any comment. They weren't real, said Susan hurriedly. Well, that is, uh, the raven's probably real, but he hangs around with the, the rat. Which isn't real, said Igor. That's right, said Susan gratefully. You probably didn't see a thing. That's right, said Igor. Not a thing. Now, how much do I owe you, said Susan. Igor counted on his fingers. That'll be... A dollar for the drinks, he said, and five pence because the raven that wasn't here messed in the pickles. It was the night before Hogswatch. In the Arch-Chancellor's new bathroom, Modo wiped his hands on a piece of rag and looked proudly at his handiwork. Shining porcelain gleamed back at him. Copper and brass shone in the lamplight. He was a little worried that he hadn't been able to test everything, but Mr Ridcully had said, I'll test it when I use it. And Modo never argued with the gentlemen, as he thought of them. He knew that they all knew a lot more than he knew, and was quite happy knowing this. He didn't meddle with the fabric of time and space, and they kept out of his greenhouses. The way he saw it, it was a partnership. 
He'd been particularly careful to scrub the floors. Mr. Ridcully had been very specific about that. Veruca gnome, he said to himself, giving a tap a last polish. What an imagination the gentlemen do have. Far off, unheard by anyone, was a faint little noise, like the ringing of tiny silver bells. bling a ling 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 And someone landed abruptly in a snowdrift and said bugger, which is a terrible thing to say as your first word ever. Overhead, heedless of the new and somewhat angry life that was even now dusting itself off, the sledge soared onwards through time and space. I'm finding the beard a bit of a trial, said Death. Why have you got to have the beard? said the voice from among the sacks. I thought you said people see what they expect to see. Children don't. Too often they see what's there. Well, at least it's keeping you in the right frame of mind, Master. In character sort of thing. But going down the chimney, where's the sense in that? I can just walk through the walls. Uh, walking through the walls is, is not right neither, said the voice from the sack. It works for me. Yeah, it's got to be chimneys, same as the beard, really. A head thrust itself out from the pile. It appeared to belong to the oldest, most unpleasant pixie in the universe. The fact that it was underneath a jolly little green hat with a bell on it did not do anything to improve matters. It waved a crabbed hand containing a thick wad of letters, many of them on pastel-coloured paper, often with bunnies and teddy bears on them, and written mostly in crayon. You reckon these little buggers be writing to someone who walked through walls? It said, and the ho 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 could use some more work if you if you don't mind my saying so. Ho, ho, ho! No, no, no! Said Albert. You got to put a bit of life in it, sir. No offence intended. It's got to be a a big fat laugh. You got to you got to sound like you're pissing brandy and crapping plum pudding, sir. Excuse my clatching. Really? How do you know all this? I was young once, sir, hung up my stocking like a good boy every year, for to get it filled with toys just like you're doing. Mind you, in those days, basically it was sausages and black puddings if you were lucky. But you always got a pink sugar piglet in the toe. It wasn't a good hog's watch, unless you'd eaten so much you were sick as a pig master. Death looked at the sacks. It was a strange but demonstrable fact that the sacks of toys carried by the Hogfather, no matter what they really contained, always appeared to have sticking out of the top a teddy bear, a toy soldier in the kind of colourful uniform that would stand out in a disco, a drum and a red and white candy cane. The actual contents always turned out to be something a bit garish and costing $5.99. Death had investigated one or two, there had been a real Agatean ninja, for example, with fearsome death grip, and a Captain Carrot one-man night watch with a complete wardrobe of toy weapons, each of which cost as much as the original wooden doll in the first place. Mind you, the stuff for girls was just as depressing. It seemed to be nearly all horses. Most of them were grinning. Horses, death felt, shouldn't grin. Any horse that was grinning was planning something. He sighed again. Then there was this business of deciding who'd be naughty or nice. He'd never had to think about that sort of thing before. Naughty or nice? It was ultimately all the same. Still, it had to be done right, otherwise it wouldn't work. The pigs pulled up alongside another chimney. Here we are, here we are, said Albert. James Riddle, aged eight. Ah, yes. He actually says in his letter, I bet you don't exist because everyone knows it's your parents. Oh, yes, said Death, with what almost sounded like sarcasm. I'm sure his parents are just impatient to bang their elbows in twelve feet of narrow, unswept chimney, I don't think. I shall tread extra soot into his carpet. Right, sir. Good thinking. Speaking of which, down you go, sir. How about if I don't give him anything as a punishment for not believing? Yeah, but uh, what's that going to prove? Death sighed. I suppose you're right. Did you check the list? Yes, twice. Are you sure that's enough? Definitely. Couldn't really make head or tail of it, to tell you the truth. How can I tell if he's been naughty or nice, for example? Ah, oh, well, um, I don't know. Has he hung his clothes up, that sort of thing? 
And if he has been good, I may give him this Clatchian war chariot with real spinning sword blades? That's right. And if he's been bad? Albert scratched his head. When I was a lad, you got a bag of bones. It's amazing how kids got better behaved towards the end of the year. Oh, dear. And now? Albert held a package up to his ear and rustled it. Sounds like socks. Socks? Could be a woolly vest. Serve him right if I may venture to express an opinion. Albert looked across the snowy rooftops and sighed. This wasn't right. He was helping because, well, death was his master, and that's all there was to it. And if the master had a heart, it would be in the right place. But are you sure we ought to be doing this, master? Death stopped halfway out of the chimney. Can you think of a better alternative, Albert? And that was it. Albert couldn't. Someone had to do it. There were bears on the street again. Susan ignored them and didn't even make a point of not treading on the cracks. They just stood around, looking a bit puzzled and slightly transparent, visible only to children and Susan. News like Susan gets around. The bears had heard about the poker. Nuts and berries, their expressions seemed to say. That's what we're here for. Big sharp teeth? What big sharp? Oh, these big sharp teeth. They're just for, um, <laughs> cracking nuts. And some of these berries can be really vicious. The city's clocks were striking six when she got back to the house. She was allowed her own key. It wasn't as if she was a servant, exactly. You couldn't be a duchess and a servant. But it was all right to be a governess. It was understood that it wasn't exactly what you were. It was merely a way of passing the time until you did what every girl, or girl, was supposed to do in life, i.e. marry some man. It was understood that you were playing. The parents were in awe of her. She was the daughter of a duke, whereas Mr Gator was a man to be reckoned with in the wholesale boots and shoes business. Mrs Gator was bucking for a transfer into the upper classes, which she currently hoped to achieve by reading books on etiquette. She treated Susan with the kind of worried deference she thought was due to anyone who'd known the difference between a serviette and a napkin from birth. Susan had never before come across the idea that you could rise in society by, as it were, gaining marks, especially since such noblemen as she'd met in her father's house had used neither serviette nor napkin, but a state of mind which was, drop it on the floor, the dogs will eat it. When Mrs Gator had tremulously asked her how one addressed the second cousin of a queen, Susan had replied without thinking, we called him Jamie, usually, and Mrs Gator had had to go and have a headache in her room. Mr Gator just nodded when he met her in a passage and never said very much to her. He was pretty sure he knew where he stood in boots and shoes, and that was that. Gawain and Twyla, who'd been named by people who apparently loved them, had been put to bed by the time Susan got in, at their own insistence. It's a widely held belief at a certain age that going to bed early makes tomorrow come faster. She went to tidy up the schoolroom and get things ready for the morning and began to pick up the things the children had left lying around. Then, something tapped at a window pane. She peered out at the darkness and then opened the window. A drift of snow fell down outside. In the summer, the window opened into the branches of a cherry tree. In the winter dark, they were little grey lines where the snow had settled on them. Who's that? said Susan. Something hopped through the frozen branches. Tweet, 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 would you believe? said the raven. Not you again. You wanted maybe some dear little robin? Listen, your grandfather... Go away! Susan slammed the window and pulled the curtains across. She put her back to them to make sure and tried to concentrate on the room. It helped to think about normal things. There was the hog's watch tree, a rather smaller version of the grand one in the hall. She'd help the children to make paper decorations for it. Yes, think about that. There were the paper chains... There were the bits of holly thrown out from the main rooms for not having enough berries on them, and now given fake modelling clay berries and stuck in anyhow on shelves and behind pictures. There were two stockings hanging from the mantelpiece of the small schoolroom grate. There were Twyla's paintings, all blobby blue skies and violently green grass and red houses with four square windows. There were normal things. She straightened up and stared at them, her fingernails beating a thoughtful tattoo on a wooden pencil case. The door was pushed open. 
It revealed the tousel shape of Twyla, hanging onto the doorknob with one hand. Susan, there's a monster under my bed again. The click of Susan's fingernails stopped. I can hear it moving about. Susan sighed and turned towards the child. All right, Twyla, I'll be along directly. The girl nodded and went back to her room, leaping into bed from a distance as a precaution against claws. There was a metallic zing as Susan withdrew the poker from the little brass stand it shared with the tongs and the coal shovel. She sighed. Normality was what you made it. She went into the children's bedroom and leaned over as if to tuck Twyla up. Then her hand darted down and under the bed. She grabbed a handful of hair. She pulled. The bogeyman came out like a cork, but before it could get its balance, it found itself spread-eagled against the wall with one arm behind its back. But it did manage to turn its head to see Susan's face glaring at it from a few inches away. Gawain bounced up and down on his bed. Do the voice on it! Do the voice on it! he shouted. Don't do the voice! Don't do the voice! pleaded the bogeyman urgently. Hit it on the head with the poker! Not the poker! Not the poker! It's you, isn't it? said Susan, from this afternoon. Aren't you going to poke it with the poker? said Gawain. Not the poker! whined the bogeyman. New in town? whispered Susan. Yes! The bogeyman's forehead wrinkled with puzzlement. Here! How come you can see me? Then this is a friendly warning. Understand? Because it's Hogswatch. The bogeyman tried to move. You call this friendly? Ah, you want to try for unfriendly? said Susan, adjusting her grip. No, 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 I like friendly. This house is out of bounds, right? You a witch or something? moaned the bogeyman. I'm just... something. Now, you won't be around here again, will you? Otherwise it'll be the blanket next time. No! I mean it. We'll put your head under the blanket. No! It's got fluffy bunnies on it. No! Off you go, then. The bogeyman half fell, half ran towards the door. Not right, it mumbled. You're not supposed to see us if you ain't dead or magic. It's not fair. Try number 19, said Susan, relenting a little. The governess there doesn't believe in bogeymen. Right, said the monster hopefully. She believes in algebra, though. Oh, nice. The bogeyman grinned hugely. It was amazing the sort of mischief that could be caused in a house where no one in authority thought you existed. I'll be off then, it said. Um, happy hogs watch. Possibly, said Susan, as it slunk away. That wasn't as much fun as the one last month, said Gawain, getting between the sheets again. You know, when you kicked him in the trousers. Just you two get to sleep now, said Susan. Verity said the sooner we got to sleep, the sooner the Hogfather would come, said Twyla conversationally. Yes, said Susan. Unfortunately, that might be the case. The remark passed right over their heads. She wasn't sure why it had gone through hers, but she knew enough to trust her senses. She hated that kind of sense. It ruined your life, but it was the sense she had been born with. The children were tucked in, and she closed the door quietly and went back to the schoolroom. Something had changed. She glared at the stockings, but they were unfulfilled. A paper chain rustled. She stared at the tree. Tinsel had been twined around it, badly pasted together decorations had been hung on it, and on top was the fairy made of... She crossed her arms, looking up at the ceiling, and sighed theatrically. It's you, isn't it? she said. Squeak. Yes, it is. You're sticking out your arms like a scarecrow, and you've stuck a little star on your scythe, haven't you? The death of rats hung his head guiltily. Squeak. You're not fooling anyone. Squeak. Get down from there this minute. Squeak. And what did you do with the fairy? It shoved under a cushion on the chair, said a voice from the shelves on the other side of the room. There was a clicking noise, and the raven's voice added, These damn eyeballs are hard, aren't they? Susan raced across the room and snatched the bowl away so fast that the raven somersaulted and landed on its back. They are walnuts, she shouted as they bounced around her, not eyeballs. This is a schoolroom, and the difference between a school and a, and, and a raven delicatessen is that they hardly ever have eyeballs lying around in bowls in case a raven drops in for a quick snack. 
Understand? No eyeballs? The world is full of small round things that aren't eyeballs, okay? The raven's own eyes revolved. And I suppose a bit of warm liver's out of the question? Shut up. I want you both out of here right now. I don't know how you got in here. There's a law against coming down the chimney on Hog's Watch night. But I don't want you back in my life. Understand? The rat said you ought to be warned even if you were crazy, said the raven sulkily. I didn't want to come. There's a donkey drop dead just outside the city gates. I'll be lucky now if I get a hoof. Warned, said Susan. There it was again, the change in the weather of the mind, a sensation of tangible time. The death of rats nodded. There was a scrabbling sound far overhead. A few flakes of soot dropped down the chimney. Squeak, said the rat, but very quietly. Susan was aware of a new sensation, as a fish might be aware of a new tide, a spring of fresh water flowing into the sea. Time was pouring into the world. She glanced up at the clock. It was just on half-past six. The raven scratched its beak. The rat says... The rat says you'd better watch out. There were others at work on this shining Hogswatch Eve. The Sandman was out and about, dragging his sack from bed to bed. Jack Frost wandered from window pane to window pane, making icy patterns. And one tiny hunched shape slid and slithered along the gutter, squelching its feet in slush and swearing under its breath. It wore a stained black suit, and on its head the type of hat known in various parts of the multiverse as Bowler, Darby, or the one that makes you look a bit of a tit. The hat had been pressed down very firmly, and since the creature had long pointy ears, these had been forced out sideways and gave it the look of a small malignant wingnut. The thing was a gnome by shape, but a fairy by profession. Fairies aren't necessarily little twinky creatures. It's purely a job description, and the commonest ones aren't even visible, such as the electric drill-chuck key fairy. A fairy is simply any creature currently employed under supernatural laws to take things away, or, as in the case of the small creature presently climbing up the inside of a drainpipe and swearing, to bring things. Oh, yes, he does. Someone has to do it, and he looks like the right gnome for the job. Oh, yes. Sidney was worried. He didn't like violence, and there had been a lot of it in the last few days, if days passed in this place. The men... Well, they only seemed to find life interesting when they were doing something sharp to someone else, and while they didn't bother him much in the same way that lions don't trouble themselves with ants, they certainly worried him. But not as much as tea time did. Even the brute called Chicken Wire treated tea time with caution, if not respect, and the monster called Banjo just followed him around like a puppy. The enormous man was watching him now. He reminded Sidney too much of Ronnie Jenks, the bully who'd made his life miserable at Gamma Wimblestone's dame school. Ronnie hadn't been a pupil. He was the old woman's grandson or nephew or something, which gave him a license to hang around the place and beat up any kid smaller or weaker or brighter than he was, which more or less meant he had the whole world to choose from. In those circumstances, it was particularly unfair that he always chose Sidney. Sidney hadn't hated Ronnie. He'd been too frightened. He'd wanted to be his friend. Oh, so much. Because that way, just possibly, he wouldn't have had his head trodden on such a lot and would actually get to eat his lunch instead of having it thrown in the privy. And it had been a good day when it had been his lunch. And then, despite all Ronnie's best efforts, Sidney had grown up and gone to university. Occasionally his mother told him how Ronnie was getting on. She assumed in the way of mothers that because they had been small boys at school together they had been friends. Apparently he ran a fruit stall and was married to a girl called Angie, who was, according to Sidney's mother, a bit of a catch, since her father owned a half-share in an eel-pie shop in Gleam Street. You must know her. Got all her own teeth and a wooden leg you'd hardly notice. Got a sister called Continence. Lovely girl. Why didn't she invite her along for tea next time he was over? Not that she hardly saw her son, the big wizard at all these days, but you never knew, and if the magic thing didn't work out, then a quarter share in a thriving eel pie business was not to be sneezed at. This was not enough punishment, Sidney considered. Banjo even breathed like Ronnie, who had to concentrate on such an intellectual exercise and always had one blocked nostril, and his mouth open all the time. He looked as though he was living on invisible plankton. 
He tried to keep his mind on what he was doing and ignore the laboured gurgling behind him. A change in its tone made him look up. Fascinating, said Tea Time. You make it look so easy. Sidney sat back nervously. Um, it, it, it should be fine now, sir, he said. It just got a bit scuffed when we were piling up the... He couldn't bring himself to say it. He even had to avert his eyes from the heap. It was the sound they'd made. The... Um, um, things, he finished. We don't need to repeat the spell, said Tea Time. Oh, it'll... it'll... it'll keep going forever, said Sidney. The simple ones do. It's, it's just a state change powered by the... the uh, it just keeps going, he swallowed. So, he said, I was uh, thinking, since you don't actually need me, uh, sir, um, perhaps Mr. Brown seems to be having some trouble with the locks on the top floor, said Tea Time. That door we couldn't open, remember? I'm sure you'll want to help. Sidney's face fell. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a locksmith. They appear to be magical. Sidney opened his mouth to say, but I'm very bad at magical locks, and then thought much better of it. He had already fathomed that if Tea Time wanted you to do something and you weren't very good at it, then your best plan, in fact, quite possibly your only plan, was to learn to be good at it very quickly. Sidney was not a fool. He'd seen the way the others reacted around Tea Time, and they were men who did things he'd only dreamed of. Not, that is, things he wanted to do, or wanted done to him, just things that he dreamed of, in the armpit of a bad night. At which point he was relieved to see Medium Dave walk down the stairs, and it said a lot for the effect of Tea Time's stare that anyone could be relieved to have it punctuated by someone like Medium Dave. We've found another guard, sir, up on the sixth floor. He's been hiding. Tea Time stood up. Oh, dear, he said. Not trying to be heroic, was he? He's just scared. Shall we let him go? Let him go, said Tea Time. Far too messy. I'll go up there. Come along, Mr Wizard. Sidney followed him reluctantly up the stairs. The tower, if that's what it was, he thought, he was used to the odd architecture at Unseen University and this made you you look normal, was a hollow tube. No fewer than four spiral staircases climbed the inside, crisscrossing on landings and occasionally passing through one another in defiance of generally accepted physics. But that was practically normal for an alumnus of Unseen University, although technically Sidney had not alumned. What threw the eye was the absence of shadows. You didn't notice shadows, how they delineated things, how they gave texture to the world, until they weren't there. The white marble, if that's what it was, seemed to glow from the inside. Even when the impossible sun shone through a window, it barely caused faint grey smudges where honest shadows should be. The tower seemed to avoid darkness. That was even more frightening than the times when, after a complicated landing, you found yourself walking up by stepping down the underside of a stair and the distant floor now hung overhead like a ceiling. He'd noticed that even the other men shut their eyes when that happened. Tea time, though, took these stairs three at a time, laughing like a kid with a new toy. They reached an upper landing and followed a corridor. The others were gathered by a closed door. He's, um, he's barricaded himself in, said Chicken Wire. Tea Time tapped on it. You in there, he said. Come on out. You have my word you won't be harmed. No! Tea Time stood back. Banjo, knock it down, he said. Banjo lumbered forward. The door withstood a couple of massive kicks and then burst open. The guard was cowering behind an overturned cabinet. He cringed back as Tea Time stepped over it. "'What are you doing here?' he shouted. "'Who are you?' "'Ah, I'm glad you asked. "'I'm your worst nightmare,' said Tea Time cheerfully. "'The man shuddered. "'You mean the one with the giant cabbage "'and the sort of whirring knife thing?' "'Sorry?' Tea Time looked momentarily nonplussed. "'Then you're the one about where I'm, I'm falling, "'only instead of ground underneath it's all... "'No, in fact I'm...' "'The guard sagged. "'Oh!' Not the one where there's all this kind of, you know, mud and then everything goes blue and... No, I'm... Oh, shit! Then you're the one where there's this door, only there's no floor beyond it, and then there's these claws and... No, said Tea Time, not that one. He withdrew a dagger from his sleeve. I'm the one where this man comes out of nowhere and kills you stone dead. The guard grinned with relief. Oh, that one, he said, but that one's not very fr... 
He crumpled around tea time's suddenly outthrust fist, and then, just like the others had done, he faded. Rather a charitable act there, I feel, tea time said as the man vanished, but it is nearly Hogswatch after all. <laughs>